Um, as I said before, whenever I come to do this, you know, I'm, I'm kind of nervous, and uh, sometimes I get the feeling that you all are kind of nervous for me, you know, maybe up, <laughs> a little uptight for me. So I, I like to start out with, with a joke to kind of loosen you all up, but also to kind of loosen me up, get me uh, in, a, in a place where I can do this. So there's this little boy named Johnny who was, uh, he, he went to Sunday school, and in Sunday school he was learning about how God created Eve by removing a rib from Adam's side, and he created Eve that way. And so later in the week, his mother noticed that he was just laying down and acting like he was sick. So she asked him, Johnny, what is it? What's the matter? And he said, well, Mom, my side hurts awful bad. I think I'm going to have a wife. <laughs> so, now that you're all loose, I'm still not, but you all are, so we'll start. Uh, I want to acknowledge that Dr. John Avanzini is here, is going to be one of the speakers for our for our Word First Conference, and it's an honor to have him here. He's been out of the country and out of town, and we haven't seen him in a while, so welcome back, Brother Amen. John. We love you. We love you. Well, the title of my message today is, We Have an Enemy. And it's not your wife. <laughs> it's not your mother-in-law. It's not your boss. Who knows who it is? It's Satan and all of his little demons that joined him when he left heaven and was cast to the earth. And Satan has a scheme. And, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of times we think about Satan in terms of him being our personal enemy, and he is. But he's also our enemy in terms of he manages the systems of this world. He's, uh, he is the author of the Babylonian system that controls our governments of the world, controls the financial institutions of the world, he controls the educational processes of the world for the most part. And he's there in everything that goes on in our world today. But what I'm going to talk about today is his influence in our personal lives and how he's an enemy in our personal lives. Because you may not deal with Satan personally, but as I said before, he's got a lot of little critters that help him out and do his bidding. And they're at work in his behalf to prevent you from living a victorious life. And so... Uh, I want, to, I want to kind of lead us through that and help us to understand how all that works. So first of all, he has a scheme. He has a, a process that he uses to be able to uh, manipulate us personally and to manipulate the systems of the world. And that came about in, in the creation of the, of the world if, in Genesis 1. If you want to turn to Genesis 1, uh, that's the beginning, you know. Genesis 1, that's where it all started. 
It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And you know Satan's a creep, you know. So, <laughs> so Adam had authority over him. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in Genesis 3, and I'm just kind of setting the stage for all this here. Genesis 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent... The serpent, you know, the serpent was Satan, or Satan inhabited the, the uh, form of a serpent. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, God Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which in the midst of the garden God has said, You shall not eat it nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, we see in Genesis 1 that God gave Adam dominion over the whole earth, over everything that moved on it and did, and did anything in it. But we see in Genesis 3 where Adam failed to listen to what God's word had said and listen to what the serpent said, or listen to what Satan said. And in doing so, he gave dominion over the earth to the devil. And we've been paying the price for it ever since. I just lost a page out of my Bible. My poor Bible. One of these days I'll fix it. God, God, though, wasn't fooled. He had a plan. He had a plan for somebody to redeem the earth and to take the authority that Adam had given to Satan back to mankind. So in Luke 4, if you look at Luke 4, Verse 5 says, Then the devil took him on a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you in their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. And that was true at that point in time. He did have all that authority. He could give that authority to Jesus at that time. But if we look at in 1 Peter 3, I'm just kind of setting the stage for all this scheme that he has, this plan that he has. 1 Peter 3, verse 22 says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, who he's talking about is Jesus. Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, 
angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So we see from that that all those powers and authority that Satan enjoyed had then been turned over to Jesus. And because Jesus now has authority over the world, we do too. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8 verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And in Galatians, Galatians 3, it says, verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, it's, it's important for us to understand that the authority over the earth was given back to, to Jesus after Satan had received it from Adam. And because we're joint heirs with Jesus, we have the same authority over the earth that he has. It's important that we understand that. Now, that may be a little hard for some of you to process, but if you just look in the Word, you'll see that it's true. <clears throat> so, Satan has not given up. He's still at war with us. He's still, he's still our enemy. He's still trying to prevent us from living a victorious life. He's trying to prevent us from declaring his, his name and his word to the rest of the world. And he has, that's his purpose. His purpose is to convince us that sickness and poverty and disease and addictions and divorces and all those kinds of things are, are right. That we deserve what we get. But as a matter of fact, it's not, and we don't have to receive any of that from him because we have authority. And, you know, Satan, some people will try to make you think that Satan can do anything to you that he wants, but he can't. He is not omnipotent. He's not God. He's not impotent. He's not omniscient. He, he's not all-powerful. He is limited. He can't read your mind. He doesn't know what you think. He only knows what you say, and we'll come to that in a little bit. He has one tool, and that's deception. That's the only tool that he has. He's a liar and the father of lies, and that's the only way that he can, that he can have any authority over you is to deceive you. And... Most of you know that I like definitions. And I want to read to you the definition of deception. And this is an important definition. It's important that we understand it. Deception is a falsehood or deliberate concealment or misrepresentation of the, of the truth. So it's not just an out-and-out lie. But it's a concealment deliberate concealment or misrepresentation of the truth with the intent of leading another into error or disadvantage. And his intent is to lead you into error or disadvantage. And the second piece of that definition is believing anything contrary.
to God's word, the revealed truth. So it's important that we understand that this is his only weapon. He has no other weapon. He can't attack your spirit. He can only attack your soul. He can't attack your body without deceiving you first. He has to attack you in your soul, in your mind. And if we aren't gaining victory in our lives over the effects of the curse, it's because Satan has deceived us in some area. Think about that. If we're not having victory in our lives over the effect of the curse, it's because we're deceived somewhere along the line. Let's look at John chapter 8. John 8. John 8 verse 31 says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The only way that you can be redeemed from the effects of the curse, even if you're a born-again Christian, a tongue-talking, spirit-filled Christian, the only way you can gain victory over the effects of the curse is to know the truth, because the truth will set you free. The truth you know will set you free. <clears throat> that, that deception is the same weapon that he used in the Garden of Eden. You heard it when we read that, uh, that passage in Genesis about he told Eve that you will not surely die. That when you eat, you'll your mind will be opened and you'll recognize the difference between good and evil. Well, they recognized the difference between good and evil all right after they ate the fruit, but before they ate the fruit, they didn't know any evil. They didn't know anything. So it was a deception. First of all, it was a lie because he said they wouldn't die, but they did die spiritually. And then he concealed part of the truth in, that he, in the rest of what he said. It's the very same uh, trick that he tries to use on us. Deuteronomy 13 says that I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. We all have the opportunity to choose life every day of our lives. But often we don't. We choose to do things that do not promote life, but promote death. Either spiritual death or, or uh, soul death or physical death sometimes. And no one chooses death without being deceived. You know, this, this thing that he puts before us here to choose life or choose death, choose blessing or the curse, that's pretty simple. And if every time you had that choice, the choice was clear, you had a clear understanding of, of the difference between the two, what would you choose? You'd choose life every time, wouldn't you? And so if you don't choose life, if you make choices that are detrimental to your life and your livelihood, it's because you're deceived in some area. So that's what he's about. 100% he's about deception. That's the only tool he has. And he has seven basic deceptions. We're going to go through those, 
And I think when we get through them, you'll understand how subtle he is and how tricky he is and how much we as people and we as a world are manipulated by his lies. The first deception is that the devil isn't real. Look at Ephesians 6. Okay. Am I changing? I am. Did I do something wrong? Am I spitting in the mic or something? <laughs> the first deception is that he isn't real. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. That sounds like the devil to me. But you know, some time ago they did a survey of, of Christians, professing Christians, and discovered that 59% of professed Christians don't believe that the devil is real. That's almost half, you know. Don't believe that the devil is real. And right there it is in Ephesians 6.12. And the reason that he likes to use this deception, and he uses all Hollywood and all kinds of other things to convince us that it, cartoons. Y'all ever see cartoons where the devil's a little red man sitting on your shoulder and whispering in your ear? Got a pitchfork and a long tail and all that kind of stuff. Well, all those things are tools that he uses to convince people that it isn't real. It's just some fairy tale or some cartoon. And the reason he likes to use that is because if you believe that deception, then you won't be concerned about the others. You won't recognize where they're coming from, and they won't have the impact on you that they should have. If you don't believe that he's the enemy, you'll believe that everything else is your enemy, like your wife or your husband or your mother-in-law or your boss or the neighbor or whoever, the government whatever. You'll try to blame everything on everybody else other than who is the true author of all that, and that's Satan. Sometimes you even blame the pastor or elders or the praise and worship team. It's not us. His second major deception is that you can't win, that he's too powerful that he's too cunning, that he is too smart, that you can't win against him. But Ephesians 6.11 says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And you know, you're going to hear a, a recurring theme through this, that the word and your knowledge of the word is what protects you from the wiles of the devil and the deceptions that he promotes. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You know how lions hunt? You ever see an uh, uh, animal planet or anything like that where they show how lions hunt? Well, the way they hunt is they, they take the oldest, most toothless, least powerful lion in the, in the, whatever they call it, herd or pack or whatever it is. Pride. Thank you, Matthew. 
the one that has the least ability to do harm, but he has this big roar. And they set him to roaring behind the game that they're after to chase him out where they can get to him. And then all the big li- the, the healthy lions attack him and kill him. Well, that's Satan's process. He roars by, by putting on you symptoms like sickness or poverty or family problems or work problems or whatever to produce what? Fear. That's, his, that's the weapon, fear. He uses those deceptions to bring about fear in your life. And once you get in fear, that means that you have more faith in Satan's power or this symptom's power to do you harm than you have in God's power to heal you or to make you prosperous or to solve your, pro- your family problems or whatever. You, believe, you have more faith in the devil than you fa- have faith in God's word. Faith moves the hand of God. And fear opens the door to the devil. It's as simple as that. And it happens time after time after time after time. And we've all fallen, fallen for that, haven't we? Anybody here ever not fallen for that? No hands. Bit my hand down too because I, I fall. Fear produces either paralysis or panic. When you get really afraid, sometimes you just can't move. You just lock up. It produces indecision and inability to function as God intended you to function. Fear does. Panic does. Fear produces, or panic produces either fight or flight. One of the two. If you're not paralyzed, you'll either fight or you'll run. And when we run, we tend not to run toward God, but we tend to run away from God and not practice what God's taught us to practice. You know, there are over 300 fear not scriptures in the Bible. It's a lot. So God recognizes that this is a tool of the enemy and he's advising us that that tool, if we don't receive it, can't work. And it can't. The only power he has over us is the power that we let him have. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And if we'll believe, just believe that, that one scripture, if we'll just believe that and put it into practice in our lives every day, Satan can't defeat us ever. Not ever. The third deception is that the Bible isn't literally true. The same survey that I referred to a while ago found out that 38% of professed Christians don't believe that the Bible is literally true. That just boggles my mind. How somebody who professes to be a Christian cannot believe that the Bible is true. If the Bible is true, there's nothing Christian to believe in. And I believe it to be literal. 
2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is literally true. And we read before that uh, that the that the oh excuse me I lost my place I'm sorry. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed in Him, "If you abide in My word, you are My disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free." We read that before. The truth enables the recognition of Satan's lies. Just look at Psalm one nineteen. Psalm 119, verse 11, says, Your word I have hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. And that's really a key verse. You know, if you, you may not know the word verbatim, and you may not be able to, script, to, to, to quote it exactly as it is in the Bible, but if you have the principle in you of the word, Satan can't deceive you. If you have it in your heart and you believe it, he can't deceive you. Deception number four. That you aren't worthy. Boy, I've struggled with that one for years and years and years and let Satan beat me up really bad with it. And how he does it is he'll remind you of every bad thing you ever did. Sometimes every five minutes he'll remind you of every bad thing you ever did. And he'll remind you with such subtlety, but such force, that you will, if you don't have the word in your heart, that you will believe it. And if you believe that, then you won't practice what you need to practice. Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, verse 14 says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. You know, righteousness just means right standing with God. It's not hard to understand. And righteousness isn't something that we earn. It's something that we receive the day we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. And once you earn that righteousness by accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, Savior, it can never be taken away from you. Not ever. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is a life verse for me, says, For he made him, for he, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the day you got saved, the day you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were given Jesus Christ's righteousness, who has never sinned, as your own, just because you received Him as Savior. Say, if you get that down in your spirit, Satan can never convince you that you aren't worthy. Never. But you've got to get it in your heart. Deception number five. That it doesn't matter what you believe. 
It doesn't matter what you believe. I can't tell you how many times when I've talked to people that I've ministered to one way or another or even just visited with that say about the word that, oh, I can believe that, but I can't believe that. I just can't believe that. You know, that's not true. It just isn't true. You can believe what you choose to believe. It's a choice. You remember the story about the man they called Doubting Thomas in the Word? How when the, the other disciples were telling him that they had seen Jesus and that he had raised from the dead, and you know what he said? He said, unless I put my fingers in, in, the, in his hands and my hand in his side, I will not believe. He didn't say he couldn't believe. He said, I will not believe. He made a choice that he, that he was going to have to have physical proof before he could believe. Millions of people have expressed that same thing about the word. I just won't believe that. They say I can't believe it, but what they really mean is they won't. But they can if they make a choice to do so. And Satan uses all the tools of the word, world. He uses movies. He uses books. He uses television. He uses sports figures. He uses all kinds of people to convince us to shake our belief in God's word. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith, it's impossible to please him, God. For he who comes to God must believe that he, God is, and that he, God, is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, everything else that you try to do in your Christian life just won't work. You have to believe that he is God, that he's faithful, and that he'll do what he says he'll do, that he's a rewarder of those who, who believe in him. James 1, 7 and 8 says, For let not that man, that man, suppose that he will receive anything from God. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And it reminds me of the people who say that they'll believe this out of the Bible, but they won't believe that out of the Bible, or can't. They always say can't, but they mean they won't. <clears throat> they're double-minded. They believe part, but they don't believe the whole thing. There's no halfway. You either believe or you don't. And if you believe only halfway, you, that's disbelief. That's all it is. Deception number six. That it doesn't matter what you think. I can think anything I want to. Yeah, you can, but it ain't smart. <laughs> Your mind is Satan's target. It's the only way that he can get to you. There is no other way. If he can convince you in your mind of a, of a deception, of a lie, he's got you. He can't get you any other way. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What your mind stays on, what you think about, 
over and over, the things that you repeat in your mind. You know, we all do that, don't we? Sometimes we even dream things over and over. What you think on, what stays in your mind, will eventually become your actions. You'll do what you think about. You have to protect your mind. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That ought to be a life verse for every one of us. Because that's how it works. It's how you defeat Satan, but it's also how you build your faith. By what you, by what you think about. What your mind stays on. Deception number seven. And we've talked a lot about this in this, in this body. And... Speaking for myself, if, if I would go back 25 years or so in my life, I wouldn't have thought very much about this deception. But I can tell you today, it's so important in my life and my wife's, and we help each other in this regard. The last deception is that it doesn't matter what you say. But you can just say anything as long as you don't believe it, you know, or as long as you don't expect it to happen or whatever. But wrong thoughts lead to wrong words. I said before, whatever your mind stays on is what you will do. Well, whatever you think about, you will eventually say, unless you guard your tongue, unless you guard yourself against saying those things that don't line up with the Word of God. James 3.2 says, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. In other words, if you can bridle your tongue and not say things that are detrimental to your life or detrimental to other people or detrimental to what the word says, Satan can't get to you. Satan will use your own words against you. You know that? He will use your own words against you. And he'll remind you what you said. See how you talk to that person? Whatever. Some people call that conscience, you know, but it isn't always conscience. Sometimes it's the devil whispering in your ear, or not the devil himself. Most of us never have any interaction with the chief devil, the real antichrist, which is Satan. Most of us will never have any dealings with him on a one-on-one -on -one basis, but his, his little cohorts will work on you on a consistent basis. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. We have to guard our tongue. We have to guard our mouth. And then Mark eleven twenty three says, For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, 
but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. He will have whatever he says. And this verse speaks about it in a positive vein, you know, that you're able to do all things based on what you say. But there's also a negative side of that, and that is that whatever you say, you'll have, good or bad. So we have to guard ourselves. We have to speak faith words. So those are the, the seven basic deceptions that Satan has, and there's all kinds of offshoots of those. You know, and I just, In this period of time, there's no way to cover everything, and besides, if I did, you'd all be bored and going to sleep. <laughs> so those are the seven basic ones. And everything else, every other trick that he has is some form of one of those deceptions. And if, you know, the, the only way to defend yourself against something is to know what it is. If you don't know that these are the ways that he works, you won't guard against them, and you won't take the offensive against him to do what needs to be done. So what do we do? How do we defend against all this? We have two major tools to fight against the devil. The first one is God's word. And we've referred to that a number of times in this little talk here. God's word is the, is, is the thing. We have to hear it on a consistent basis. We have to read it for ourselves. We have to study it. We have to memorize it. We have to speak it. And that may sound like a lot of work. And at times it is, at least in the beginning. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Because if you don't do those things, you're leaving yourself wide open for anything that he chooses to do with you. That's not very smart. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word is what equips you. In Psalms 119.11, which I read earlier, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's the tool. And the second tool is our faith. You know, I used to think that faith was just kind of a nebulous thing, you know, that was just sort of there, you know, and you either had faith or you didn't. But it isn't nebulous. It's a force. Faith, faith is a force, and it's available to every born-again Christian. Every born-again Christian has the ability to use that force of faith. Hebrews eleven six says that without faith it's impossible to please him, God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Romans ten seventeen says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And I want to elaborate just a little bit on that. You know, there's hearing, and then there's hearing. And, you know, that may seem like a subtle difference, but I can hear something, ask my wife, I can hear something and not really hear it. Right, Sarah? Right. She says, Amen. 
But when you really hear something, it sticks in you somewhere. It's yours. And, the, and faith that it's talking about in this, in this verse is that kind of faith. The kind of faith that sticks with you, that belongs to you. And then it becomes a powerful tool. Ephesians 6.16 says, Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And faith is truly a shield. Because when the Satan starts coming at you, or his little cohorts start coming at you with all these deceptions, your faith can turn all that away and help you defeat all the wiles of the devil. Well, I think I'm done. I have, a, I have another little story that I want to tell you, just to kind of, well, you can judge it for yourself. There's this little 10-year-old boy and his dad who were going fishing on a Sunday morning. That's the first mistake. Going fishing on a Sunday morning, and... They were going by this little town on the way to where they were going fishing. And the little boy insisted to his dad that they go into this little church and uh, go to service and then go fishing after that. Well, father reluctantly agreed to do that. And in the process of the, of the uh, service, they received the offering. And the dad had forgotten to bring any cash. He had credit cards and things, but he forgot to bring any cash. So... He had a dime, so he gave this dime to the little boy so he could put it in the offering, and so they did, and when the service was over and all that, they were walking back to their car, and the dad was complaining that the service was too long, and the preacher was boring, and the choir sung off key, and it was just all terrible. The little boy thought about that for a little bit and said, well, dad, I think it was pretty good for a dime. So, sometimes you get what you pay for. 